0: Jeffrey Skilling was a longtime officer of the seventh highest revenue grossing company in America, Enron Corporation. He served as CEO from February until August, 2001, when he resigned. He was later convicted of conspiracy, securities fraud, making false representations to auditors, and insider trading. On appeal, he argued that the government prosecuted him under an invalid legal theory and that the jury was biased. There were two questions before the Supreme Court in this case. One, when a presumption of jury prejudice arises because of the widespread community impact and inflammatory publicity of the defendant's alleged conduct. Can the government rebut the presumption of prejudice? If so, must the government prove beyond a reasonable doubt that no juror was actually prejudiced? And two, whether the Federal Honest Service's fraud statute requires the government to prove that the defendant's conduct was intended to achieve private gain rather than to advance the employer's interests, and if not, whether the statute is unconstitutionally vague. The opinion of the court was divided into three parts. Parts one and two cover the facts of the case and answer the first question regarding juror bias. Part three addresses the second question before the court regarding the Federal Honest Services Fraud Statute. I've divided this opinion into two episodes. Part one, which I read last episode, included parts one and two of the opinion regarding facts of the case and jury bias. But this episode, part two, will cover part three of the opinion regarding the Federal Honest Services Fraud Statute. And like I mentioned last episode, this episode contains the part of the opinion that relates to a case before the court this term for COCO v. United States. And now, part three of the 2010 Opinion of the Court in Skilling v. United States. Part Three We next consider whether Skilling's conspiracy conviction was premised on an improper theory of honest services wire fraud. The Honest Services Statute, Section 1346, Skilling maintains is unconstitutionally vague. Alternatively, he contends that his conduct does not fall within the statute's compass. Section A To place Skilling's constitutional challenge in context, we first review the origin and subsequent application of the honest services doctrine. 1 enacted in 1872 the original mail fraud provision, the predecessor of the modern-day mail and wire fraud laws, proscribed, without further elaboration, use of the mails to advance any scheme or artifice to defraud. In 1909, Congress amended the statute to prohibit as it does today, any scheme or artifice to defraud, or for obtaining money or property by means of false or fraudulent pretenses, representations, or promises. Emphasizing Congress's disjunctive phrasing, the courts of appeals, one after the other, interpreted the term scheme or artifice to defraud, to include deprivations not only of money or property, but also of intangible rights. In an opinion credited with first presenting the intangible rights theory, Shushan v. United States, 1941, the Fifth Circuit reviewed the male fraud prosecution of a public official who allegedly accepted bribes from entrepreneurs in exchange for urging city action beneficial to the bribe payers. It is not true that because the city was to make and did make a saving by the operations there could not have been an intent to defraud the Court of Appeals maintained. A scheme to get a public contract on more favorable terms than would likely be got otherwise by bribing a public official, the Court observed, would not only be a plan to commit the crime of bribery, but would also be a scheme to defraud the public. The Fifth Circuit's opinion in Shushan stimulated the development of an honest services doctrine. Unlike fraud in which the victim's loss of money or property supplied the defendant's gain, with one the mirror image of the other, the honest services theory targeted corruption that lacked similar symmetry, while the offender profited the betrayed party suffered no deprivation of money or property. Instead, a third party, who had not been deceived, provided the enrichment. For example, if a city mayor, the offender, accepted a bribe from a third party in exchange for awarding that party a city contract, yet the contract terms were the same as any that could have been negotiated at arm's length, the city, the betrayed party, would suffer no tangible loss. Even if the scheme occasioned a money or property gain for the betrayed party, courts reasoned, actionable harm lay in the denial of that party's right to the offender's honest services. Most often, these cases involved bribery of public officials, but courts also recognized private sector honest services fraud. In perhaps the earliest application of the theory to private actors, a district court, reviewing a bribery scheme, explained, When one tampers with the employer-employee relationship, For the purpose of causing the employee to breach his duty to his employer, he in effect is defrauding the employer of a lawful right. The actual deception that is practiced is in the continued representation of the employee to the employer that he is honest and loyal to the employer's interests. Over time, an increasing number of courts recognized that a recreant employee, public or private, could be prosecuted under the mail fraud statute if he breached his allegiance to his employer by accepting bribes or kickbacks in the course of his employment. By 1982, all courts of appeals had embraced the honest services theory of fraud. Two. In 1987, this court in McNally v. United States stopped the development of the intangible rights doctrine in its tracks. McNally involved a state officer who, in selecting Kentucky's insurance agent, arranged to procure a share of the agent's commissions via kickbacks paid to companies the official partially controlled. The prosecutor did not charge that in the absence of the alleged scheme, the Commonwealth would have paid a lower premium or secured better insurance. Instead, the prosecutor maintained that the kickback scheme defrauded the citizens and government of Kentucky of their right to have the Commonwealth's affairs conducted honestly. We held that the scheme did not qualify as mail fraud. Rather than construing the statute in a manner that leaves its outer boundaries ambiguous and involves the federal government in setting standards of disclosure and good government for local and state officials, we read the statute as limited in scope to the protection of property rights. If Congress desires to go further, we stated, it must speak more clearly. 3. Congress responded swiftly. The following year, it enacted a new statute specifically to cover one of the intangible rights that lower courts had protected prior to McNally, The Intangible Right of Honest Services. In full, the Honest Services Statute stated, For the purposes of the chapter of the United States Code that prohibits mail fraud, section 1341, and wire fraud, section 1343, the term Scheme or artifice to defraud includes a scheme or artifice to deprive another of the intangible right of honest services. Section B. Section B. Congress, skilling charges, reacted quickly but not clearly. He asserts that section 1346 is unconstitutionally vague. To satisfy due process, a penal statute must define the criminal offense with sufficient definiteness that ordinary people can understand what conduct is prohibited and in a manner that does not encourage arbitrary, and discriminatory enforcement. The void-for-vagueness doctrine embraces these requirements. According to Skilling, section 1346 meets neither of the two due process essentials. First, the phrase, the intangible right of honest services, he contends, does not adequately define what behavior it bars. Second, he alleges, Section 1346's standardless sweep allows policemen, prosecutors, and juries to pursue their personal predilections, thereby facilitating opportunistic and arbitrary prosecutions. In urging invalidation of section 1346, skilling swims against our case law's current, which requires us, if we can, to construe, not condemn, Congress's enactments. Alert to section 1346's potential breadth. The Courts of Appeal's have divided on how best to interpret the statute. Uniformly, however, they have declined to throw out the statute as irremediably vague. We agree that Section 1346 should be construed rather than invalidated. First, we look to the doctrine developed in pre-McNally cases, in an endeavor to ascertain the meaning of the phrase the intangible right of honest services. Second, to preserve what Congress certainly intended the statute to cover, we pare that body of precedent down to its core. In the main, the pre-McNally cases involved fraudulent schemes to deprive another of honest services through bribes or kickbacks supplied by a third party who had not been deceived. Confined to these paramount applications, section 1346 presents no vagueness problem. 1. There is no doubt that Congress intended Section 1346 to refer to and incorporate the Honest Services Doctrine recognized in Court of Appeals' decisions before McNally derailed the intangible rights theory of fraud. Congress enacted Section 1346 on the heels of McNally and drafted the statute using that decision's terminology. As the Second Circuit observed in its leading analysis of Section 1346, the definite article, THE, suggests that intangible right of honest services had a specific meaning to Congress when it enacted the statute. Congress was recriminalizing mail and wire fraud schemes to deprive others of that intangible right of honest services which had been protected before McNally. Not all intangible rights of honest services, whatever they might be thought to be. 2. Satisfied that Congress by enacting section 1346, meant to reinstate the body of pre-McNally honest services law. We have surveyed that case law. In parsing the courts of appeals decisions, we acknowledge that Skilling's vagueness challenge has force, for honest services decisions preceding McNally were not models of clarity or consistency. While the honest services cases preceding McNally dominantly and consistently applied the fraud statute to bribery and kickback schemes, schemes that were the basis of most honest services prosecutions, there was considerable disarray over the statute's application to conduct outside that core category. In light of this disarray, Skilling urges us, as he urged the Fifth Circuit, to invalidate the statute in toto. It has long been our practice, however, before striking a federal statute as impermissibly vague to consider whether the prescription is amenable to a limiting construction. We have accordingly instructed the federal courts to avoid constitutional difficulties by adopting a limited interpretation if such a construction is fairly possible. Arguing against any limiting construction, Skilling contends that it is impossible to identify a salvageable honest services core. The pre-McNally case law, he asserts, is a hodgepodge of oft-conflicting holdings that are hopelessly unclear. We have rejected an argument of the same tenor before. In Civil Service Commission v. Letter Carrier's federal employees challenged a provision of the Hatch Act that incorporated earlier decisions of the United States Civil Service Commission enforcing a similar law. The several thousand adjudications of the Civil Service Commission, the employees maintained, were an impenetrable jungle, undiscoverable, inconsistent, and incapable of yielding Any meaningful rules to govern present or future conduct. Mindful that our task was not to destroy the act if we could, but to construe it, we held that the rules that had evolved over the years from repeated adjudications were subject to sufficiently clear and summary statement. A similar observation may be made here. Although some applications of the pre-McNally honest services doctrine occasioned disagreement among the courts of appeals, these cases do not cloud the doctrine's solid core. The vast majority of the honest services cases involved offenders who, in violation of a fiduciary duty, participated in bribery or kickback schemes. Indeed, the McNally case itself, which spurred Congress to enact Section 1346, presented a paradigmatic kickback fact pattern. Congress's reversal of McNally And reinstatement of the honest services doctrine, we conclude, can and should be salvaged by confining its scope to the core pre-McNally applications. As already noted, the honest services doctrine had its genesis in prosecutions involving bribery allegations, both before McNally and after Section 1346's enactment, courts of appeals described schemes involving bribes or kickbacks as core honest services fraud precedents. The most obvious form of honest services fraud, core misconduct covered by the statute, most of the honest services cases, typical, clear-cut, and uniformly covered. In view of this history, there is no doubt that Congress intended Section 1346 to reach at least bribes and kickbacks. Reading the statute to proscribe a wider range of offensive conduct we acknowledge, would raise the due process concerns underlying the vagueness doctrine. To preserve the statute without transgressing constitutional limitations, we now hold that Section 1346 criminalizes only the bribe and kickback core of the pre-McNally case law. The government urges us to go further further by locating within section 1346's compass, another category of proscribed conduct, undisclosed self-dealing by a public official or private employee, i.e., the taking of official action by the employee that furthers his own undisclosed financial interests while purporting to act in the interests of those to whom he owes a fiduciary duty. The theory of liability in McNally itself was non-disclosure of a conflicting financial interest, the government observes, and Congress clearly intended to revive that non-disclosure theory. Moreover, although not as numerous as the bribery and kickback cases The government asserts, the pre-McNally cases involving undisclosed self-dealing were abundant. Neither of these contentions withstands close inspection. McNally, as we have already observed, involved a classic kickback scheme. A public official in exchange for routing Kentucky's insurance business through a middleman company, arranged for that company to share its commissions with entities in which the official held an interest. This was no mere failure to disclose a conflict of interest. Rather, the official conspired with a third party so that both would profit from wealth generated by public contracts. Reading section 1346 to proscribe bribes and kickbacks and nothing more satisfies Congress's undoubted aim to reverse McNally on its facts. Nor are we persuaded that the pre-McNally conflict of interest cases constitute core applications of the honest services doctrine Although the courts of appeals upheld honest services convictions for some schemes of non disclosure and concealment of material information, they reached no consensus on which schemes qualified. In light of the relative infrequency of conflict of interest prosecutions, in comparison to bribery and kickback charges, and the inter-circuit inconsistencies they produced, we conclude that a reasonable limiting construction of section 1346 must exclude this amorphous category of cases. Further dispelling doubt on this point is the familiar principle that ambiguity concerning the ambit of criminal statutes should be resolved in favor of lenity. This interpretive guide is especially appropriate in construing section 1346, because mail and wire fraud are predicate offenses under the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act and the money-laundering statute. Holding that honest services fraud does not encompass conduct more wide-ranging than the paradigmatic cases of bribes and kickbacks, we resist the government's less constrained construction absent Congress's clear instruction otherwise. In sum... Our construction of Section 1346 establishes a uniform national standard, defines honest services with clarity, reaches only serious culpable conduct, and accomplishes Congress's goal of overruling McNally. If Congress desires to go further, we reiterate it must speak more clearly than it has. 4. Interpreted to encompass only bribery and kickback schemes, section 1346 is not unconstitutionally vague. Recall that the void for vagueness doctrine addresses concerns about 1. Fair notice and 2. Arbitrary and discriminatory prosecutions a prohibition on fraudulently depriving another of one's honest services by accepting bribes or kickbacks does not present a problem on either score. As to fair notice, whatever the school of thought concerning the scope and meaning of section 1346, it has always been plain as a pike staff, that bribes and kickbacks constitute honest services fraud and the statute's mens rea requirement further blunts any notice concern. Today's decision clarifies that no other misconduct falls within Section 1346's province. As to arbitrary prosecutions, we perceive no significant risk that the honest services statute, as we interpret it today, will be stretched out of shape. Its prohibition on bribes and kickbacks draws content not only from the pre-McNally case law, but also from federal statutes proscribing and defining similar crimes. A criminal defendant who participated in a bribery or kickback scheme, in short, cannot tenably complain about the prosecution under Section 1346 on vagueness grounds. Section C. It remains to determine whether Skilling's conduct violated Section 1346... Skilling's honest services prosecution, the government concedes, was not prototypical. The government charged Skilling with conspiring to defraud Enron's shareholders by misrepresenting the company's fiscal health, thereby artificially inflating its stock price. It was the government's theory at trial that Skilling profited from the fraudulent scheme through the receipt of salary and bonuses, and through the sale of approximately $200 million in Enron stock, which netted him $89 million. The government did not, at any time, allege that Skilling solicited or accepted side payments from a third party in exchange for making these misrepresentations. It is therefore clear that, as we read Section 1346, Skilling did not commit honest services fraud. Because the indictment alleged three objects of the conspiracy—honest services wire fraud, money or property wire fraud, and securities fraud—skilling's conviction is flawed— This determination, however, does not necessarily require reversal of the conspiracy conviction. We recently confirmed in Hedgepath v. Polito, 2008, that errors of the Yates variety are subject to harmless error analysis. The parties vigorously dispute whether the error was harmless. We leave this dispute... For resolution on remand. Whether potential reversal on the conspiracy count touches any of Skilling's other convictions is also an open question. All of his convictions, Skilling contends, hinged on the conspiracy count and, like dominoes, must fall if it falls. The district court deciding Skilling's motion for bail pending appeal, found this argument dubious, but the Fifth Circuit had no occasion to rule on it. That court may do so on remand. For the foregoing reasons, we affirm the Fifth Circuit's ruling on Skilling's fair trial argument, vacate its ruling on his conspiracy conviction, and Remand the case for proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, navigate your way to the show's website at whatscotusrotus. Dot podbean dot com and click on the contact tab. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.